Good afternoon, Acadiana. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5. And it is an exciting day in the world of news. A lot of stuff nationally to talk about. Let's start with the most breaking thing. The Senate, the U.S. Senate has unanimously passed a measure that would make daylight savings time permanent. So if you like the extra hour of daylight at the end of the day, we could very well be heading toward that. That uh, measure, which uh, it's a Marco Rubio measure co-sponsored by Sheldon Whitehouse. So it is bipartisan and passed unanimously. It is set to go to the House where it is expected to be approved. And I guess it all depends on the old man in the White House. If he wants an earlier evening so that he can go to bed earlier than Joe Biden may veto it. But I imagine that this measure uh, is well on its way to becoming permanent. So we will uh, see the end of changing our clocks twice a year, and we will just be sticking with the extra hour of daylight at the end of the day. So good news on that front. If you are tired of changing your clocks, I'm still feeling the effects of daylight savings time. I know a lot of y'all out there are. And the best part is, or yeah, the best part is it's going to take away those stories that we get twice a year where doctors complain to media outlets about the disastrous health effects of moving our clocks around. So thankfully, we get done with all that. 232-1542, if you want to join in the conversation. I want to jump to Florida. There's a lot of stuff going on in Washington, D.C., in Baton Rouge, in Ukraine, but I want to talk about Florida because there's a very interesting development today as Governor Ron DeSantis keeps a campaign promise of his, and it is a promise that has, again, bipartisan support. Uh, teachers, parents, and students all love the, uh, the measure that was signed into law today. The state of Florida is eliminating end-of-the-year standardized testing. Now, here in Louisiana, we refer to it as the LEAP test, and every year, Starting around now, teachers start feeling the crunch and start trying to make sure their kids are all brushed up on all the standards and all the content and the skills and the knowledge that they need to know because a month from now, students are going to be sitting in classrooms for hours at a time taking one test. For middle schoolers, it's several days in a row of taking a math test and then an English test and then a science test, and then a social studies test. In high school, there are uh, there's one test for each content area, but typically taken at different grade levels, so they don't have to spend several days in a row, just maybe two max. But at the high school and middle school level, and at the elementary school level, I just talk about middle and high because that's what I've taught, uh, you spend several days taking these content area tests toward the end of the year, and then you don't really get the results for a while, and it's an end-of-the-year test, so it's not like you can go back and reteach what the student knows or doesn't know. Uh, that's it. That you, If a student doesn't get a satisfactory score, they'll have to retake it at a later point. If you're in high school, in order to get the high school credits you need, you've got to retake it and get a passing score on it. If you're in middle school, it informs, elementary or middle, it informs how you progress. Do you get into an honors class? Do you need to retake the course? Something like that. Across the nation, we have these end-of-the-year standardized tests. It's actually fairly controversial, the uh, the end-of-the-year standardized test. It's so controversial, in fact, that an activist at a debate in 2019 asked, uh, it, was a, it was a debate or a town hall, 
asked Joe Biden about it. And Biden said that he was going to uh, ban standardized testing in the states. Now, granted, that that promise hasn't come to fruition yet. I'm, I'm assuming that it's been uh, completely dropped in favor of all the other stuff he's wanted to do that's worked out so well for the United States. But uh, we have this measure in Florida, Senate Bill 1048, which was passed by the Florida legislature. And today at a press conference, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida passed it, uh, signed it. Now, what this is going to do is it's going to get rid of the end of the year standardized test. And it's going to try. So this is the last year, the class of 2020. This is the last year that they'll take this test at the end of the year. Starting next year, the state of Florida will not grade at schools for next year. What it's going to do instead is they're going to get a baseline of data on this new initiative. They're going to do progress monitoring. So instead of a multiple-day, hours-long test at the end of the year, Florida schools three times a year are going to do shorter tests. The governor has said that it's actually going to cut testing time by about 75%. But more importantly, the data is available almost immediately to schools and districts and teachers. So that when these kids test, you can adjust your instruction in the classroom, a teacher can, to compensate for what the kids might be deficient in. And you can adjust your education, you can adjust your instruction to make sure that every student is caught up. You can individualize the education a whole lot better. It's no longer a one-size-fits-all model. And this is stellar news for the state of Florida. This means that a third of the way into the year, students can take this test, take, take a much shorter test, that assesses their knowledge in the standards and the knowledge and the skills they're supposed to have by that point. And whatever they're deficient in, teachers can use that data almost immediately to adjust how they're teaching and make sure that every kid is caught up. So the kids that are behind, they can catch up. The kids that are ahead, they can keep working. And this allows for every student to have the ability to be successful in school. I've got an email in to the Florida Department of Education because I'd like to see some more specifics on the plan. I'm hoping that they'll reach out. I, I emailed uh, the communications director for Ron DeSantis, um, and she was very quick to, to get me the proper contact info. So I've, I've reached out to them. I'm hoping to get some information so I can look at this and look at this program. But based on what I'm seeing so far, it looks like a stellar program. Now, the biggest question education-wise, is going to be this. How much local control is involved? You want the schools to be able to kind of dictate their pace based on the needs of the student body and things like that. But at the same time, you need the state and the districts to be able to have a level of control because obviously there is a proximity bias there. If we're assessing teachers by what their students are capable of doing on the test, we need somebody from the outside looking at that data as well. You can't leave it all up to the local school. But by going this route, and we're already seeing this here in Lafayette Parish, we actually do something similar already through a program called Edge Elastic. There are actual standards-based uh, exams that are given 
throughout the year to students. And the district is able to see that data and kind of see how on track schools and teachers are. And they're able to use that to offer advice. But now we're seeing it in Florida. We're seeing this program become formalized where it's not you're testing the students throughout the year to make sure they're on track for the LEAP test or in Florida's case, the the Florida State Assessments, the the FSAs. Instead, you're tracking their progress all year long without the pressure of that end-of-the-year test, so long as by that last progress monitoring and the teacher's own assessments, the kids know what they need to know, and they are better prepared because they're not having to cram for a month over a test before things go back to the way they were. 232-1542, if you want to join in the conversation, when we come back, Speaking of Florida, why things are looking great for Ron DeSantis and bad for the Democrats from Biden on down here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542. If you want to join in the conversation, uh, again, this, this Florida measure that would get rid that that gets rid of end of the year standardized testing and moves to progress monitoring uh, throughout the year is I think a really solid idea. I'm hoping to get some more information from the Florida Department of Education if for no other reason than I know some people in the in our state Department of Education that I want to throw this information at and and try to talk them into looking at it a little more closely. Uh, but I also think it's something that school districts, even in the state, can start piloting more of this progress monitoring. And yes, it would still be geared toward end-of-the-year assessments, but we're already seeing some moves like it, but maybe we can try to formalize it a little bit better. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, like I said, 232-1542, or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, or you can uh, catch me on Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show and uh, reach out to me there. But where Governor Ron DeSantis is making a move that's popular with teachers and parents and students, it's also very clear that Governor Ron DeSantis is making big inroads with the Hispanic voting community in Florida. And this is part of a big problem that Democrats have. A poll in Miami-Dade the the most Democratic county probably in Florida, usually gives Democrats double-digit wins. Uh, we're seeing uh, the Democrats start to falter with Hispanic voters there. We started seeing that in 2020 with Donald Trump's numbers in Florida, but now we're starting to see it uh, getting even worse for Democrats across the board. The results from this poll show that Biden is unpopular among Hispanics while compared with the rest of the country. 51% said they have an unfavorable view of him, while white and black voters have a 56% and 75% favorable view of him, respectively. But when voters are split into Cuban and non-Cuban, the results show that Biden is seen favorably by non-Cuban Hispanic voters, with 58% saying they have a favorable view of him, and about 59% of Cubans say they have an unfavorable view of Biden. Now, why is that? What you're going to start seeing is that Hispanic voters, like Cuban Americans and like South American immigrant families, they're going to start 
showing more and more unfavorability toward Biden and the Democrats. And all this ties back to country of origin. In countries that have seen full-on socialist or communist takeover, and tons of people are fleeing those regimes, they are coming to America for something different, something more free. And then they turn around and see that the Democratic Party in the U.S. is adopting a lot of the same measures. And they do not like that at all. It's exactly what their families tried to flee from. What you're also seeing is that even among Hispanic voters who don't necessarily have those backgrounds, the, we've seen traditionally that the longer a Hispanic family is in the United States, we're talking in terms of generations, the more they trend toward conservatives and Republicans. And a lot of that has to do with cultural issues. Hispanic voters, by and large, are more religious than white voters, rivaled really only by evangelical black voters. Um, because you know, culturally, religion is a very important part of black culture and Hispanic culture, more so than in, than in white culture, particularly where Democrats are concerned. And so the social progressivism that is very pro-abortion and, and all those sorts of things tends to worry a lot of those more socially conservative voter groups. So you start to see them trend toward Republicans. Add on top of all that the crisis at the border, where Democrats are not in really showing any initiative on securing the border at all. And so you see a lot of people jump the line, and it makes the families that have come here legally very, very upset that they had to go through all these loopholes, but now anybody can just jump in. And all of these are stacking up. There is a segment of the Cuban vote that is still open to supporting Democrats. About 37% in this Miami-Dade poll. But the problem is these are numbers for Biden. When you go down ballot, the numbers get worse. And what you're seeing is that a lot of independents among Hispanic voters are trending to the right. The poll is better news for Republicans in Miami-Dade. DeSantis is supported by 50% of those polled, 50% in a highly Hispanic, highly Democratic area of the state, 50% of those polled, seen favorably by 78% of Republicans, 46% of independents, and 27% of Democrats. That data point, all those people supporting DeSantis, include 48% of voters who said DeSantis deserves four more years in his job. If Ron DeSantis, a Republican, is getting 48% in Miami-Dade for another four years, you can rest assured that 0.6% or whatever that he won by last election cycle, 2018, is going to be a lot bigger this time. Democrats are chasing Hispanic voters away. The same Hispanic voters that the Democrats were sure for years would be what helps bring them into a permanent majority in Washington, D.C. and across the country. The Democrats have long believed that demography is destiny, that if the demographics of the country can change, it would benefit them. 
And that's why they were fine with looser border restrictions. That's why they're fine with more federal assistance. That's why they're fine with more social programs. All to help those that are traditionally racially in those demographics, those folks will support Democrats through those programs. But now what you're seeing is that we had four years of Donald Trump with historic record low unemployment and tighter controls on the border so that people couldn't jump the line. And you had a Trump administration that did actually do some socially conservative things that those voters kind of liked. And all those factors rolled together and Trump started getting bigger and bigger margins in those demographic areas. Trump made, made big gains among black and Hispanic voters. Relatively speaking, he still didn't get a lot of them, but he got a lot more than was expected. And Republicans will still continue to capitalize on that. And it's because the Democrats are chasing those voters away. That is bad, bad news. Keep in mind that Joe Biden is still averaging down almost nine points in his approval across the country. And you're looking at November of this year, Democrats being in absolute trouble. 232-1542. We're about to take our bottom of the hour break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in Baton Rouge because we do have a new uh, some new quotes out from the uh, House Committee looking into the Ronald Green death. We'll have that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542. If you want to join in the conversation, the Federal Reserve is expected this week to increase interest rates by about a quarter of a percentage point. And it'll be the first time that we've seen that in about three years. So what does that mean? Well, interest rates obviously are going to go up. But more importantly, typically when interest rates go up, we're going to see a little bit of a recession. So on top of all the economic news that we've been seeing, we could very well see the start of a recession before the Democrats see their midterm. It could happen, but the bigger issue is not bad news. When interest rates go up, it's a signal that there is something positive in the U.S. economy. Now, right now, everything seems negative. Inflation is the big problem. When you raise interest rates, you're combating inflation. See, part of the inflation issue is very much a Joe Biden issue. And the fact of the matter is that Joe Biden and his policies have caused a lot of the inflation issues that we see. But another part of it is the fight to keep interest rates low, which started with Barack Obama, continued under Donald Trump. Trump famously publicly threatened Fed board members if they did not go along with keeping interest rates low. Remember, the Fed made noise about raising interest rates, which they should have done under the Trump administration, but Trump very publicly started blasting them and started threatening them over that because he wanted to keep interest rates low. He wanted things to be good for the American people, which is fine in the short term and the intermediate term. 
But keeping interest rates so low does have a negative economic impact where inflation is concerned. So everything was there. And then, of course, COVID-19 happened. The economy was shut down and things went from uh, seemingly okay to bad. The problem is that it went from bad to worse when Joe Biden won in 2020 and started pushing out policies that made inflation worse, made our energy production in the United States worse, and all that has led us to the moment we're in now. The good news is that the price of oil is down about 25% from where it was a week ago. And you are starting to see oil companies, oil and gas companies, show profits. That means you can expect, and I think, um, I think we're starting to see the gas price drop very, very incrementally. Not, not as big as the jumps were over the last week or two. But you're starting to see gas prices trickle back down just a little bit. The, the state average yesterday, I think it dropped from, the, from Sunday. I think you're seeing them drop across the state again. We're going to see this slow step down. Now, are we going to go back to $2 and something cents like we saw before this? Probably not, at least not immediately, and definitely not if the Biden administration keeps pushing the policies it's pushing. But its policies are very strange where energy production is concerned. Right now, Biden is ignoring Saudi Arabia, to the point where Saudi Arabia is looking at Russia with a favorable eye. India is looking to buy energy from the Russians because the Biden administration has ignored India. Meanwhile, in countries where we made progress, like the United Arab Emirates, like Saudi Arabia, under Trump, the Biden administration is ignoring them. And they're looking at Russian allies like Venezuela, and like Iran. The Biden administration would rather buy oil from Iran and Venezuela, two countries that have thrown in the towel with Russia. They've thrown their towels in with Russia. They, 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 that is who they're with. That's who they're aligned to. The Biden administration, I think their strategy, if I can be as charitable as possible, the Biden administration thinks if they can just go in to Russia's allies and make better offers, that they'll win them over. And that's not going to happen. Remember when I said in the last segment that Hispanic voters are turning away from Biden and the Democrats? This is one of the things that's driving them crazy. Making sweet eyes at Venezuela is not something that you do if you want to get Hispanic American voters to stay on your side. When a bunch of Hispanic American voters escaped Maduro, escaped Venezuela and the regimes there, and countries like it. Like it. But they would rather make kissy face with Venezuela and Iran than look at potential allies like Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia wants to be the U.S.'s ally. And, so, and the United Arab Emirates wants to be closer to the U.S. And we're trying really hard, or we tried really hard, to keep Turkey in line. Because Venezuela, I'm not, not Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Turkey, all these countries in the Middle East start looking at the U.S. and start looking at Israel as potential allies because Iran's ambitions are totally destabilizing to the region. But Biden would rather go through with a new nuclear deal with Iran, 
one that is being negotiated. While we're talking about Russia's misdeeds in Ukraine, we're also relying on Russia to negotiate a nuclear deal with Iran for us. One that's conducted in bad faith. I'm sorry to give credit to something that Kevin McCarthy said, but he's absolutely right in that case. Iran is being given a bad faith nuclear deal from us. It's being negotiated by Russia. Because the Biden administration would rather do business with Iran and Russia and Venezuela than look for different sources of energy and alliance. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates won't take Joe Biden's calls because he's ignored them for so long. The Biden administration has basically said we're not going to take the calls of, of, the, uh, of the prince of Saudi Arabia because they don't consider him Biden's equal on the world stage. There's a king of Saudi Arabia, but the king has designated pretty much all of his power to his prince, to his son. And that's who conducts affairs of state. But Biden and the Biden administration don't see him as the world leader equal of Biden, so they're not taking his calls. Then, as things started to get bad in the energy crisis here, Biden tried to call over there, and the prince of Saudi Arabia didn't take his call. The Biden administration looked at all of the countries that Donald Trump treated favorably. See, a lot of people got distracted with the Russia stuff and with the North Korea stuff. And they didn't pay attention to what else was going on. If Trump did it, if Trump was doing something about it, the Biden administration is running away from it. They're changing course. The Abraham Accords, they wanted to undo that. Where you saw Middle Eastern countries basically signing peace accords with Israel, they don't like that. Saudi Arabia would love to be part of that and love to have Israel as an ally because of Iran. But the Biden administration isn't pursuing it anymore. The Trump administration tried to, uh, tried to become closer with India, tried to build a better relationship with India. The Biden administration is running away from that. So India is looking at Russia now. The Trump administration was building relationships with United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, India, rekindling a relationship with Turkey. All of this was going on. And the Biden administration said, well, Trump did it. We can't do it. That's just wrong. We can't. Everything he did was wrong. We can't pursue that. And so this immature pettiness from the Biden administration is hurting us on the global stage. Couple all of that with the fact that we have the, the ability to stay energy independent in the United States, and we've run away from that as well. Because the Biden administration wants us to buy electric vehicles, even though our power grids can't support it. Electric vehicles are too costly. And oh, by the way, Teslas are now jumping up in price because of economic issues. The Biden administration has mishandled the energy crisis. And yes, while barrel is going down in price, gas prices are going to move down more slowly and inflation and everything else is still keeping all the other prices jacked up. We're not going to see any relief in any reasonable amount of time that's going to save the Biden administration or the Democrats. Nor, more importantly, is it going to save your wallet from what's coming, what will continue to come. 232-1542. We're going to take another break. When we come back, your calls if you want to call in. Uh, and we will also talk a little bit about what's going on in Baton Rouge. All that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. 
Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Glad to be with y'all this wonderful Tuesday afternoon. Things looking a little bit uh, brighter than they did yesterday. And of course, last night's rain was unbearable if you're a light sleeper or you have young children. Speaking of young children, I do want to give a shout out to my oldest who's in the studio with me today. Uh, she wanted to jump on and say hi, so I'm going to give her that opportunity. Hello. <laughs> my name's Elizabeth. It's my 10-year-old daughter, um, and she has actually been coming up to the studio with me, I think, over the course of the last several years. She's yeah. been up here a few times. So. By the way, I have to say, I have to jump in and say, y'all, this guy, Joe, and his wife are doing something good because this is like the most polite young lady that I've met. Y'all do a, y'all did a great job raising her so far. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And she looks a little bit embarrassed now. So we'll, <laughs> we'll turn her mic off and jump back into the show. Uh, so in Baton Rouge, we're, we're continuing to see these uh, committees that are looking into the Ronald Green case. And actually, things got apparently a bit testy today. Former state police superintendent Kevin Reeves reportedly testified that there was no cover-up under his watch in the 2019 violent arrest and death of Ronald Green in a legislative hearing that became heated on Tuesday. This is uh, Greg Hilburn uh, with the USA Today Network. Uh, This is over at the advertiser's website. Here's the testy part. Reeves' attorney, Louis Unglesby, was removed from the witness table by committee chair Tanner McGee of HOMA after several testy exchanges between McGee and Unglesby. Later, Reeves snapped back when Baton Rouge Representative Edmund Jordan suggested Reeves would have handled the case differently had Green been white instead of black. It's the first time Reeves, who retired in October of 2020, as the controversy of the Green case escalated, testified in public. I don't believe there was any cover-up by state police in this matter, Reeves said. There was no effort, to my knowledge, to cover up or mislead the public about Ronald Green. So that is his official stance on it, but we know from several uh, reports from the a- from the Associated Press and other outlets that the, uh, the that state police were saying that Green died as a result of the crash and omitted the part about the violent beating he took that we saw from camera footage, from body cam footage that was released uh, later uh, by, or it was, it was, uh, it was given to the Associated Press, who was uh, in Freedom of Information Act request, I believe, and we we saw that video, and it vastly differed from the public story. So that saga continues to unfold in Baton Rouge. We will, of course, see more of that as this committee continues with its investigation. So we've got a Senate committee and a House committee both looking at these things, and I this this can't go anywhere good. I mean, we're going to get down to it where something definitely is exposed as being a cover-up or no matter what, the question mark's always going to linger over Louisiana State Police. And the next time there is the death of a black man in Louisiana State Police custody, this will be brought up again and it will just lead to a whole lot more negativity toward law enforcement. This was a shameful, shameful event in Louisiana State Police's history. It doesn't mean that Louisiana State Police is entirely corrupt and shouldn't be trusted ever, but that's how the, it's going to be painted by activists who will see every death at the hands of state police as suspect from here on out. And all it takes is that one high-profile story 
to turn the whole thing upside down, which is what's happening here. 232-1542, if you want to join in the conversation. Let's, um, all right, so speaking of the international stuff that I was talking about in the last segments, uh, obviously there's a whole lot that's been reported on Ukraine and Kiev and Russia over the past uh, 24 hours. So right now, if, if you haven't gotten an update on that so far, uh, Kiev's mayor is imposing a 36-hour curfew because Russian forces are closing in. What's interesting right now, and I, th- I think I mentioned this yesterday. Yeah, I did because I wrote a column on it yesterday. China is publicly backing away from Russia on this. China is not getting involved with sending any sort of aid, military supplies, anything like that to Russia after Russia asked. China's official stance is that they want to resist the U.S., without any economic pain. They don't want to, to fall uh, to, to land on the other side of U.S. and Western sanctions by aiding Russia in this. China's still maintaining that they see it as very disturbing that Russia would invade a sovereign territory. And that is a pretty big signal that Russia has screwed up here. I heard somebody mention the theory, and I don't totally buy into it, although I don't totally discount it either, that China was really wanting to get a firmer hold of Taiwan under its one China policy, a policy that Russia endorsed up until recently that China really wanted to, after the Olympics was over, and it garnered whatever goodwill it could from the rest of the world over the Olympics, would then move into Taiwan and crack down. But then, while it was going to start preparing for that, Russia went ahead with its invasion of Ukraine. And that has upset the Chinese, because it has now brought the Western world together in a way nobody really expected, and it makes it that much tougher for China to really try to to do anything as far as Taiwan is concerned. Russia and China both want the same thing. They want to expand their sphere of influence in their respective parts of the world. Russia and China have kind of an uneasy understanding with each other. Their goal, although they don't completely like or trust each other, their goal is to resist the West and the West's sphere of influence. And... So they tolerated each other. But now Russia's made it more difficult for China to do what it wants to do. And so China's backing away from Russia, which does, in the grand scheme of things, bode a little better for the United States. If we are part of a tripolar world where it's the U.S. and its allies versus Russia versus China, keeping the balance of power there, that's a much better situation than China and Russia joining up and resisting the U.S. and the West. It makes it a lot more balanced. It, it, it evens the scale out a whole lot more. All of this, though, needs one other thing to, uh, to be clear. Russia's military is a whole lot weaker than we expected. 